Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome back Joseph Lumpkin. He is the publisher of Fifth Estate Publishing. He has written and rewritten The Lost Book of Enoch, The Lost Books of the Bible, Banned from the Bible, Fallen Angels and Watchers, and The Origins of Evil, The Lost and Rejected Scriptures, The Book of Jubilees, The Book of Yasher, The Apocrypha, The Prodigal Church, The Gospel of Thomas, The Universal Bible, Angels and Demons, The Enneagram, Dark Night of the Soul, Adam and Eve, The Gospel of Mary Magdalene, The Gnostic Gospels of Philip, Mary Magdalene, and Thomas. And today he is joining us to discuss The Dead Sea Jesus, a critical study of the Qumran Scrolls, the book by Fernando Klein, who couldn't be available today. There's a lot of fascination with the Dead Sea Scrolls, with Jesus, with the past, the possibility of there having been a Christendom before Jesus was born. We're going to talk about these scrolls. We're going to talk about the Essenes and a lot about this book. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Joseph Lumpkin. Hi, Kim. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. There's so many books that you have written and discussed these different subjects that I want to have you back about. Let's talk about the Dead Sea Jesus. What are these Qumran scrolls, and what are we supposed to know about this? Well, that's an interesting question because the scrolls actually were, uh, I won't say that they were kept hidden, but they were they were not publicly made available for many years. And uh, it actually got to a point where we thought that there might be a, a bit of a conspiracy going on. So to make a long and complicated story short, Somewhere around 1946, 47, there was a discovery in a cave in an area off the Dead Sea called Qumran. And uh, it started with a uh, shepherd boy throwing a rock into a cave and hearing uh, the crash of ceramics or, or clay. And when he went in, he found that there was a jar containing a group of scrolls that his rock had accidentally hit. And it shattered revealing these very well-preserved, some well-preserved, some not, scrolls. And uh, when they started uh, excavating the caves, they found a large number of caves had a large number of scrolls, about 11 caves or so. And uh, most of these were Old Testament books. So uh, the authorities in that area... In, in Israel, took possession of these, and with the exception of uh, comments like, wow, they're almost the same as the oldest we've got, and these date back to uh, pre-Jesus time, and they're well-preserved, and they're almost identical to the books that we have that, uh, that are on the Old Testament. We didn't hear a whole lot, and for about 20 years, those scholars kept among themselves these books that were what we call non-canonical or did not appear in the Bible. And, and just recently, over 1960s to today, they have been releasing more and more information about all of these scrolls, and uh, scholars have been looking into it outside of that hand-picked little community that was uh, overseeing these for so many years. So as, uh, as these, these books and these 
these theories and these scholars have have started uh, uh, comparing their information and and researching. We've come up with some theories that are that are kind of um, evolving. At the very beginning, we thought that there was this community called the Essene community, and that it was uh, uh, an influence in Judaism and possibly Christianity at the time. So it looks to us like around 199 BC, Antiochus III, or Antiochus the Great, wrested Palestine away from Ptolemy and started uh, Hellenizing the area. In other words, he was imposing a Greek thought process and a Greek social uh, constraint on the area. And at that particular time, uh, there existed three sects in Judaism. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Essenes. And the Essenes were a small group, and they would be what we would call ultra-conservative. And we thought that they made up this Dead Sea community, the Qumran community. It now looks like we might have a community within a community and the evolution of this thought process has made us really kind of reevaluate uh, Christianity for several reasons. With me so far? Yes, absolutely. I'm on the edge of my seat. <laughs> I read the book, but I'm still on the edge of my seat. Well, it gets very, very interesting. Uh, and, and I suppose the first thing that I should tell you is that in my aspect, in my way of looking at, at religion in the world, uh, religions seldom pop up out of nowhere. They usually are an amalgam and uh, of different processes, different religions, different philosophies, and they are usually evolving. So um, we we have known uh, and 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 we you know readily accept the fact that Christianity is uh, let's call it an evolution uh, or or a, a splinter group. Of Judaism. What I don't know that we understood is that it might be a, a, a sect, if you will, that came from the uh, Dead Sea community, the Qumran community, and more specifically, maybe the Essene community. But uh, we've had to reevaluate, and, and here's here's what I mean. Um, let's take a broad look at Judaism at the time. Uh, when uh, Antiochus the Great started Hellenizing Palestine in the area, <clears throat> it caused a knee-jerk reaction within Judaism. The Sadducees were what we would call the more liberal group. They did not believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They only followed the uh, laws within the Torah. And, and they were, uh, I suppose, what we would call a, a more... Uh, sedate Judaism. Then you had the Pharisees. They believed, oh, and I, I might add that the, the Sadducees believed that we had free will only and that there wasn't anything that was fated or predestined, that we controlled our own fate. Then you had the Sadducees, or the Pharisees, and the Pharisees actually had developed a law over and above the Torah, and when you combined all of them, you had over 600 
rules to follow during your, you know, during your weekly and daily and yearly rituals. So it was almost impossible to follow all the Pharisaic rules. They had the, the rules of the Torah, and then they had the interpolations of those and how to follow them specifically. They believed that it was kind of half and half. God had certain things predestined for you you couldn't get out of, but you also had your free will working within those things. They believed in angels. They believed in the resurrection of the righteous at that particular time, but not necessarily everyone. There was some controversy about, well, you know, God will resurrect the righteous, and the rest of them, you know, we just don't know about that. There may be uh, uh, hell for them, but hell wasn't really spoken of all that much. And then you had the Essenes. They were a small group. And over about 200 years, they probably only had about 4,000 people. Uh, and let me, let me kind of broaden this out. You had the, the community at Qumran. They held everything in common, but they did allow for certain uh, uh, personal uh, ownership. Uh, they were strict, but they allowed marriage. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in the immortality of the soul. They believed in uh, punishment for the evil and reward for the righteous. And of course, when a group says that, they are telling you that they're the ones that are righteous. And, and you had something that's beginning to look like Christianity. And within that particular uh, Qumran or Dead Sea community, you had a sub-community of the Essenes. Now, this gets really interesting because in that community, you had something called the Teacher of Righteousness. Now, the Teacher of Righteousness, uh, he was the leader of a group that had been kind of wandering around spiritually, trying to figure things out, and then he kind of came along, and he was their priest. So they believed that you had no ownership. It was held in, everything was held in common, a communistic community. They did not believe in marriage. They believed in celibacy. Now you're talking about the Essenes, right? Yes. It, okay. I didn't know this part about the Essenes. Um, you know, every time a, uh, uh, a religion comes along and goes, we believe in celibacy, they're not going to be around too much. You know, we <laughs> had a shaker community. And they did the same thing that, that the Essenes did. The, uh, uh, the historians at the time tell us that the Essenes, and I'm quoting, adopted children of a pliable age and raised them according to their own beliefs as if they were their own. They did young children who had uh, not their, their will set yet, and they molded them into their community and their belief system as if they were their own children, but they did not marry. So... You have a teacher of righteousness. He's leading the community. The way you come into this community is to be baptized by the teacher of righteousness. It's a ritual cleansing. They had a communal meal once a week. He blessed that communal meal. It was the high point of their weekly ritual. You have a belief of resurrection of the dead. You have a belief that's looking a lot like modern Christianity. So who was this teacher of righteousness? We don't know much about him. We, we really don't know much about him at all, except the reflections of, of their uh, 
manual of discipline, different books like that, simply tell us that he was their spiritual leader. We know, we think we do, because there was this very, very odd uh, script that was found. Him, there are only two things that were found in that whole cave cross-section that really weren't considered a codexes or a scroll or a papyrus or whatever. This little thing was a piece of stone with ink on it called the Vision of Gabriel. And we think it was written around 50 years, five zero years, before Jesus. And it is the most amazing book because it tells of one of the teachers of righteousness, one of the, you know, the, the early leaders. Apparently the, uh, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were angry with him because of his, uh, his teaching. Of course, you know, his teaching was somewhat uh, exclusive. And they killed him. And they left him to rot on the side of a mountain. And this book says, this, this little piece of stone says, Gabriel came down to this man who was rotting. He was in decomp. He, he, was, he was turning to mush. And he said, in three days, live, Prince of Peace and Dung of the Rocky Crevice. And he called him Dung because he was turning to Dung. He was decomposing. But he also called him the Prince of Peace. And he told him in three days he would be resurrected. This is wild. Look at this stone that happened 50 years before Jesus, and we see a three-day resurrection of a teacher of righteousness in a community that baptized and had ritual uh, meals once a week, which we now call the Lord's Supper. And we see that there is a great possibility that we have a template of what we are today coming out of this community. And I might add one other thing. Jesus was in the area. He was baptized only three miles from where the center of that community was. Do you think from this information that Christianity started then, before Jesus? It, it looks like the template may have been in place. And that Jesus, you know, we had been wondering, what in the world is going on with this guy who's 30 years old and he's not married? Because every other sect of Judaism... Marriage was almost um, required to be a rabbi. It was like you, if you didn't get married before you were you know, 30 years old, something was wrong. And yet this man is following the steps of the Essene community's inner sanctum. So do you think Jesus was an Essene, a priori? Well, I don't know. I mean, I hate to say yes because I have no conclusive proof, but I tell you the evidence is weighed on that uh, on that fact, uh, the, the evidence seems to be weighed on the fact that Jesus may have been in the scene. That's fascinating. Is Fernando Klein saying that there may have been two or three messiahs? Yes. Thank you for bringing that up. That is very, very unusual. But uh, yes. Um, okay. So we have to look at our religion through our pre-stained eyes, Right. Right. So we're, we're carrying this weight with us, this, this, this uh, uh, prejudice with us all the time. And, and, and 
Christians, they have it worked out because he comes back, right? You, you have Jesus, and he came as the, as, as the prophet and uh, the high priest, and he was killed, and he's coming back as a warrior king. Well, the, the Jewish community isn't looking for him to come back. They're looking for him to come. And if you're, if you're coming once, and you have these conflicting viewpoints of what a Messiah is supposed to be, then you have to figure out what's going on. And there are people in the Essene and Qumran communities that are expecting two Messiah, maybe even three. First, let me point out that, that Christ is a title, and it means the anointed one. There are only three people, three stations that were anointed. The prophet was anointed, the priest was anointed, and the king was anointed. So if you're expecting the anointed one, you are expecting someone to be anointed at one of those stations. And when you have scriptures that say he will come as a prophet, he will come as a warrior king, he'll come as this, he'll come as that, then you really have this kind of um, divergent view of what he could be. And so there are still Jews today that, that believe that there may be more than one Messiah, and certainly then they believed in at least two they could kind of sort of put the prophet and priest together in the same role, but there was no way that they could wrap their mind around the fact that this guy was going to be coming to bless them and kill a whole bunch of people. So they had it divided in their mind that, that there would be a prophet and or a prophet priest, and then separately a warrior king. So they were looking for two messiahs. When you state that Christ was a title, which I totally get, which means the anointed one, what was this guy's name? Joshua ben Yosef. Okay, Yeshua ben Yosef, okay. So when you look at Joshua in the Old Testament, yes. well, that's the same name as Jesus without the uh, transliteration, without, without the change of, uh, of form. His name was Yeshua, Joshua, right. Joshua. That was his name, Bar, which means son of Joseph. So there really was no person, Jesus Christ. There was a Jesus who was a Christ. But there were more than one Jesuses at the time. You, you, you go back in history in that particular time, and there are several people who were named Jesus, and a couple of them uh, were, were killed. So even if you were to say Jesus was killed by the masses or by the Jews or by the Romans or whatever— at this particular time between, you know, zero and, or let's say, let's say 2 B.C. to 2 A.D., you would come across two or three Jesuses who were killed by the Romans or the Jews at that particular time who had claimed to be leaders. It was a very common name. It was like... John or something? Yes. Or Jim? Yes. When Fernando Klein came to you, to publish this book, what did you think at first? It breaks all the rules. I, I believed in uh, his research so much that I just bent our rules. And since I own the company, I can do that. But Kim, we don't do uh, we don't accept books from outside the U.S. People that have English as a second language. His writing was so articulate and clear 
that uh, I, I got over that right away. He was from Uruguay and doing business between the uh, you know some some South American countries and the U.S. Are, it's kind of difficult. Money doesn't flow well. Banks don't play nice. So I took a look at it and I said, well, I really think that the information in this book is worth all of those headaches. And so we just threw the rules out the window and Dr. Klein is the first South American author that we've taken. He's the first uh, English as a second language author that we've taken. But his uh, credentials, he's a He's an anthropologist. He's a professor. He is uh, very well uh, written. He expresses himself very, very well. And so we, we thought that the book would be worth it. It goes into intense detail. The level of detail is amazing. Uh, the level of detail is quite scholarly. And I, I am not doing it justice today, I can tell you that. And, and I'm throwing in quite a bit of my own uh, uh, just history and belief and all that in, into his book. You'll have to really get it and sit down with it and say, oh, you know, he is really uncovering some, some interesting facts. Uh, the main fact is the difference between what we will call the, the community at Qumran and specifically the community of the Essenes. They have been grouped together pretty much as one group until now. But Dr. Klein has uncovered some information that leads us to believe that they are separate, if not a subgroup, and that uh, they function under slightly different laws, laws of ownership, laws of marriage and celibacy, things like that. And it looks like... Uh, you know, you, for example, you can belong to the Catholic Church and you follow a set of guidelines and you become a priest and you follow an even more strict set, set of guidelines. And it almost looks like the Essenes were part of that kind of inner priesthood, if you might, might say. We also thought maybe that there, was no, um, that there were no women within the Qumran community. That turns out not to be true. There might not be any... Uh, women in the inner sanctum of the Essene community, but Qumran had women and children, and it looks like the children may have been adopted. Why adopted? Well, they, they handled things. Um, there were different levels, you might say, of, uh, of righteousness, and, and, and that might be a, an odd way of putting it, but you know, you can take a vow of celibacy or not. So there were people that did not, there were people that were Essenes that did not live within the community. Then there were people that did live in, inside the community and they followed certain strict rules. Those people who were celibate could adopt and raise the children as their own. And that's what the Shakers in the U.S. did. They were a celibate Christian community and they adopted. But as I said before, when you make celibacy part of your religious guideline, stand by for news, you're going extinct. <laughs> I'm sorry I'm laughing, but oh, it is it's funny. Just, I mean, it's funny to me, too. It's like, what can we do to shoot ourselves in the foot and bleed out slowly? Oh, <laughs> let's go celibate. See, my view on religion is really, really slanted toward the psychological, the, 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 um, the human psychology point of view. 
um, I look at the amalgam and the mixture of religions as they evolve. You know, for example, the Essene community had a really, really uh, defined sense of good and evil. As a matter of fact, contracts weren't even allowed in the Essene community because if your word wasn't good enough, you were kicked out anyway. Now, that's a wonderful thing, in my opinion, that a handshake and a word meant more than a contract with anybody else. But they had such a defined sense of good and evil that they had uh, the sons of light and the sons of darkness. And a war would, would happen between these sons of righteousness, the sons of light, and the sons of darkness, the sons of evil. At the last days, I have a very apocalyptic view of the world. And almost every religion, when it has an apocalyptic view of the world, they think, of course, they are the remnant, and they're the ones that are going to survive, and God will kill everybody else and smite their enemies and raise them up. And, you know, the Christians have that viewpoint also. It evolved from that same kind of aspect. We Christians as a whole think that uh, everyone else, God is going to come back and wipe out all the heathens and save, uh, save the Christians. Well, if you're, if you're a Jew and you think that you're the chosen people and somebody comes in and kicks your butt, like, for example, in 70 A.D. where the temple was completely raised to the ground, and you're sitting there looking at this and you go, well, wait a minute, I thought we were the chosen people. And someone says, well, yeah, we, we are, but we just kind of got off track here. We've got to really kind of bear down and get really, really right with God, and then he's going to come back and wipe out the entire world, and we will be raised up as, as his own you know, uh, chosen people, and we'll show everybody else. That happens with every single religion. It's happening now in, in the uh, religions in the Middle East. There's a whole sect in the Middle East that go, Wow, they came in, the U.S. came in, and they really kicked our butt. So does this mean, oh, okay, it, it probably means we haven't killed enough Americans. Let that sink in, guys. I'm going to be quiet for a minute and let that sink in. We haven't been righteous enough because we haven't killed enough Christians. So the Jews aren't too far from that. They think, well, you know, we, we haven't been righteous enough. And so that's the apocalyptic view is... Uh, you get really, really, really religious, not spiritual, because if you're spiritual, you don't go around killing people. You become religious, and uh, and you get all your rules and regulations right, and God comes back and blesses you and wipes everybody else out. This is really heavy, but this is the essence of what's going awry with a religious spirit, in a sense that you have the license to go ahead and do whatever you want. In the name of God, yes. Right. Now, I wanted to make a point that the Essenes were not a warrior people. They, they weren't. But I'm making, I'm making a point that when something goes wrong and you think that you've got your act together and you have all the, the, the answers and God's speaking directly to you, when something goes wrong in your world, you only have two ways to go. Gee, I was wrong and I'm not all that special. Or, hmm, I must not have been uh, righteous enough and I've got to really sit down and follow the rules. Then if you're a warrior religion... Like, like Christianity was in the, uh, in the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages and, and uh, when we were taking over, trying to imperialize and take over the world. And, and as a put footnote, as Islam, some sects of Islam continue to be now, 
then, then we have a problem because, see, we were stone knives and bearskins back in that day. And, and we could wreak havoc and draw a lot of blood, but it was by the sword. And now we have the same screwed up viewpoint of religion, except now we have nukes and bios. And things are going to get really, really nasty unless somebody wakes up and says, you know, religion sucks. We need to be spiritual, and that means we need to figure this out from a vantage point of God himself. If God made us, does he really want us to kill each other? Doesn't seem reasonable to me. Not to diverge from what you're saying, it seems to me that these religious wars that are taking place are going to find their way into the destruction of entire cities and countries. But if we could go back for just a moment to the Dead Sea, Jesus, and talk a little bit about the calendar. You had talked about how the Jewish people have a calendar that's a lunar calendar. The Essenes had a solar calendar that's described in the Book of Enoch. How this is important if one believes that the holy days must be carried out at the proper time. And if you believe in two messiahs, what do you do? Uh, If you believe that you have got to follow the letter of the law, and that letter has to do with timing and holy days, then it follows that you must have the right holy days and the right calendar to do the right thing. Now, there was a group within the Essene community that did not practice sacrifice because they said, we have sacrificed ourselves to God, and therefore we do not need to kill any other animals. But they still followed some of these, they still followed the holy days. So the question is, uh, what days do the holy days fall on? Prior to Hillel, the great uh, rabbi, the Jewish calendar had was a lunar-based calendar having about 354 days. Don't quote me on that, but I think I'm... You're right. 354 days. Okay. Um, and so you have a year that's spinning slowly backwards. You have 365 and a quarter days, and you have a calendar that's uh, about you know 10 and a quarter days lower than that. And so it doesn't take long before your harvest festivals, or the festivals that occur in that period of time, are occurring in midsummer. And nothing makes sense. You're still following the calendar, but the holy day, what it's actually for and when it actually was, is now spinning out of control. So Hillel came in and said, we're going to add another month here, and it's going to be placed from time to time, and I'll tell you how to do it, and it's going to kind of correct the days. Adding another month yeah, to make up for the loss. Right, to keep everything in check. How would that work? Well, they just calculate. Well, see, when, when we, we add another day every four years, you would just wait so many years and add another month. Well, the Essenes didn't like that idea at all. They said that the calendar in itself was, was corrupt, and they went back to a calendar that was written in the books of Enoch and Jubilee. Now, let me digress just a second, but not very far. I know that in our Bible, we do not have Enoch and Jubilee, but you have to understand that the Old Testament and the Ethiopic Bible, one of the oldest Christian religions, does have those books. The Ethiopic Bible has the book of Jubilee in its Christian canon, and it's, it has the book of uh, Enoch in its 
Christian canon in the Old Testament. So having said that and, and telling you that, that Fifth Estate has the translations of the books of Enoch and the Lost Book of Enoch and the Book of Jubilee is in our uh, library, in our catalog. And you can go look this up. Those books describe the exact procession of the sun through the heavens in a solar year, and those books are the books that they took their calendar from. And so every once in a while, they would add another week because everything in the Ethiopic calendar is set up for a week's time. So over a period of four years, you would have an extra day. They would wait until the time was right for you to add about a week, which if you, if you think about it, you, you can do that in like a 12-year interval because you'll split it half in two. So they would add another week. So their solar calendar is 364 days, not 354. Correct. In the lunar calendar. That's correct. So their their calendar stayed really very close. And when it when it varied, they would wait for it to vary enough to make sense to add another week, and then add a week, and then everything would be good for a very long time after that too. So we're on a totally different cycle, really. The Jewish people are in a totally different cycle with the lunar calendar than the Essenes on a solar calendar. That is absolutely correct. So there must be some type of diffusion or confusion around what is really holy then with these dates. Yes, exactly. And the Essene community uh, went into the Dead Sea area and they uh, withdrew from what would be called the common Jewish society and one of the contentions between the, the Essenes and the Sadducees and Pharisees were the holy days. And, and this could very well have given rise to the, uh, uh, the death of the teacher of righteousness in the arguments that they had about how to carry out their uh, religious practice. Very interesting. Wow. Why did they write the apocalyptic literature? Um, by the way, we're in the year... 5770 in the Jewish in the Jewish calendar right now and um, we'll go in well actually we've already had I guess we've already had the Jewish Rosh Hashanah yes so, we have yeah so now it's 5771 as of Rosh Hashanah apocalyptic literature is exactly what I was describing before um, ap apocalyptic literature usually starts around the uh, raising of the second temple and goes to about 200 A.D. You have it before then, but it really starts proliferating at that time. And in, in, it is exactly what I, what I described. You have a people who really are convinced that they are the chosen people of God. But the Romans come in and just wipe them out. They spank them. And they're sitting there looking at their smoldering temple, and they're wondering... Are we wrong about being chosen? Nah. We must be wrong about how we're carrying it out. And the idea is that God will come back and he will, he will vindicate them. And they will be the chosen people, which means the rest of us aren't chosen. We are disposable. So the war will happen. 
And if you believe in this good versus bad, which let me digress again and tell you, Judaism in itself did not have a, a clear evil influence the way that we do today of the universe being divided in half until Zoroastrianism. And Zoroastrianism, a religion in Iran that was around the 6th century B.C., uh, their belief is that there are two deities and one's you know, purely evil and one's purely good and they're doing battle and the earth is their pearl. When the influence of that got into Judaism, we started seeing uh, this kind of uh, what we call a dualism. Now, before then, Satan was the accuser. He was going around like a little fly in everybody's face. And God would say, well, you know, you can test that one or leave that one alone. And he was just a common angel, which is another discussion if you're you're monotheistic, an angel is a really is, is a safeguard. But do you believe in angels? <laughs> can we digress? Do you believe in we angels? Can digress. We are, we're digressing <laughs> all over the place. I know. I'm sure you like the concept of angels, but do you accept them? Do I accept them? Yeah, I think I do accept them. Probably not the way that that people think that they're floating around here with nice little wings. But uh, I believe uh, that the Book of Enoch is probably correct. We had something called the Watchers. Right, and uh, and that those watchers were assigned to teach and to uh, uh, and and to record our progression, and, and we can actually go into were well, the watchers really like UFOs or were they extraterrestrials or whatever? But the watchers, if they were angels, they were they were spiritual creatures sent here to do a work, and in that aspect, I absolutely believe that there are angels. Got it. Okay, so what is the essence of what you're saying about that? Why the apocalyptic literature was written? The apocalyptic literature, uh, let's call it uh, projections and novels of what the authors believed would happen when the Messiah, the anointed one, the warrior, came back, or God himself came back on the scene and wiped out the opposition of your group and all the evil people were those other than yourself, and raised your people and your nation up, proving that they are indeed the, uh, the chosen people. So keep in mind that apocalyptic actually means to reveal something that's hidden. Wow, because it doesn't have that connotation, though. It doesn't anymore. Uh, but... Revelation, the book of Revelation, right. it says Revelations, but it's only one revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. The book Revelation actually takes its name from this same root word, which is to reveal. Do you think the book of Revelations is correct? I think it is a, uh, a metaphor. Okay. I do not think in any way, shape, or form that you can, in good conscience, interpret Revelation as being literal, you know, or interpreted from a literal standpoint. There's, and that's another thing, Kim. You keep on bringing these things up, and I go, oh, yeah, that's right. That's called the uh, Persher or Pesher, I should say, Pesher way of interpreting things. Um, to take a book like Revelation and and to apply it to what's going on in your life today or in the world today is called the Pesher Method. And 
<clears throat> the Essenes used the Pesher method of interpreting the scriptures in their time. Now, it, it really wasn't done all that much before then, but they took these books and they said, this is talking about our time today. How does it apply to us today? And Christians do that a lot, and we can get ourselves in serious trouble. So I would imagine that at this time, you probably are not in alignment or in harmony with end times prophecy. Well, you know, there are a lot of people who think that we are because everything that's bad that's happens, that happens brings us closer to this uh, end game, and it's the end game, the uh, war between good and evil that you're looking for. So no matter what happens, you can align that with what's going on. Got it. You can make it say whatever you want it to say. Why do we all think we are the remnant? And explain what the remnant is. Uh, the remnant are the people who are left who are doing the will of God after... Uh, it's almost like they are the best of the best, and that's why it's called the remnant. Uh, you, you can have the church, but the church isn't necessarily the remnant because we know that... Uh, uh, that there's going to be a great apostasy, a great falling away, and there's going to be a lot of lukewarmness within the church, and then you're going to have those people who are the remnant who are still hanging in there and doing all the things that they think they should be doing, and uh, that's the people that God's going to come back and save. And within every religion, you have this idea of the remnant. Uh, we call it we for and no more. Um, because you, you have uh, a people who are going to church and doing the things that they're, you know, they think about doing, but you know, um, they're just, they just don't quite have it right because they don't quite understand everything they need to understand. But we understand it, you see, so we are the remnant. And people think like that. Is the, as a theologian, I can tell you that theology is the height of arrogance. To think that we can study God, that's what the word means, right? That we can study God has got to be the height of all human arrogance. Followed closely by the fact that we think we actually have it figured out. Or maybe that's on top, I'm not quite sure yet. But um, Religiosity is the cancer of mankind. It causes more hate, more war. You know, as a student of mine says, religion, you can't have a war without it. <laughs> You're a martial artist, aren't you? Yes. Talk a little bit about your background in the martial arts. You've been a martial artist for over, what, 30 years? Yes, this is my 37th or 38th year. I haven't I had to stop to figure that out. Share a little bit about that with us. Uh, well, the, the group is called Shinsei Hapkido. Uh, Shinsei is uh, a word that in Korean means uh, a debt of gratitude. And in Japanese means uh, uh, Nova, a new beginning, a new birth. We're a very, very old arm of Hapkido, and Hapkido is a Korean art. Uh, and and here's another thing uh, relating back to religion. We 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 always think that our religion and our practices are ancient. You know, we talk about these ancient methods. Well, karate started in the 1920s. And Hapkido started in the 1960s as their pure art form. So we've, we've been around since uh, the 60s. We tried.
track our lineage back to Che or Choi, who was the founder. And um, and he stole his art from uh, a master of Aikijutsu out of Japan when he was there uh, during uh, uh, during the Japanese involvement in Korea. And he was apparently uh, a houseboy that was uh, probably captured, taken. We don't know. Uh, they say adopted, but I doubt it. Why do you doubt it? Well, people want to, we are romantics, and we, we want to clean up and rewrite our history. But if a Japanese uh, warrior had a Korean houseboy, he wasn't adopted. He was a servant. I got it. And and <laughs> although we want to say that, that he was practicing on the art on the mat with his master, he probably wasn't. He was probably looking through a crack in the wall. And he was probably practicing on his own. So he brought back this art, uh, which looked a lot like Aikijutsu. And uh, it became known after a while as Hapkido. And why do people practice this particular martial art? And how is it distinct from, let's say, karate or... Um... Hapkido is actually a, a mixed martial art. Uh, ours even more so because we've actually gone back and put more... Uh, ground technique and, and throws and judo in it. But Hapkido um, has kicks and punches, like karate uh, or taekwondo. And it has throws that look a lot like uh, uh, Aikido, only they're smaller, or short circle jiu-jitsu, small circle jiu-jitsu. Um, ours has a lot of judo-like throws in them from an art called Yudo, which is a Korean art of, of judo. So it's, it's, a, it's a mixed martial art, and since I run American Bell Bonding, which makes me uh, de facto a bounty hunter, these things are used on the streets to keep me alive. Wow. My family, the family business is uh, bell bonding. Uh, that goes back a couple of generations. And then I run Fifth Estate, but when we have a skip going on, somebody's trying to get away without uh, going to court, uh, we have to track him down, capture him, and bring him back. You have to be really skillful to do that on a lot of levels. <laughs> um, we have been in so few fights, it's ridiculous, because you don't have the dog, the bounty hunter mentality. It is a tactical, persuasive mentality that allows you to find and negotiate with these guys. And uh, we have only been in, in combat a couple of times because we are careful and we are tactical. What an interesting life you have as a publisher, an author, and a bounty hunter. What an interesting life. <laughs> I, and a know, martial I, artist. Being one-dimensional. <laughs> you know, there, there are different ways of viewing life, and one is a, a Hebrew way and one is a Greco-Roman way. The Greeks wanted people to be very, very good in one thing, and they would drill down really deep, and they had their, their, their uh, doctors and their philosophers and everything else. But the Jews, they wanted you to know a little bit about everything. And so if you drop the Jew off in the desert, he's going to recreate society for you. If you drop a Greek off in the desert, he's going to die. <laughs> because he's one-dimensional. Now, that's obviously... A generalization, please don't write Kim or myself and say how, you know, anti-Greek I am. I'm, I'm very, very, I'm just being myself and telling, I'm speaking in hyperbole. What would Fernando Klein say 
about what the essence of his book is telling us. The essence of this book is to make us re-examine and reconsider the Qumran and Essene community at the time. It is not what we thought. It is probably two different groups. It is probably uh, more complicated than we thought. Uh, They coexisted in the same area, but they were not identical. They had different influences on the people around them, including Jesus. Jesus was in the area, probably a member of one or both of these groups. These groups, uh, although they were small, the Essenes only had 4,000 people over, over 200 years. They weren't big at all. But they were so adamant about their belief that that belief may have influenced our very beginnings as the Christian church. Is Fernando Klein's work becoming more accepted? Has he met with a lot of resistance or opposition? What is your knowledge of how this book is being received? I believe that uh, there, there have always been, when the, the very beginning came out, you, you um, have a, a group of people who tend to kind of uh, gather up on what we will call the more simplistic viewpoint, and they don't want to come off of it. But the more scholarly research is being done, the more Dr. Klein's work is being proven out. So uh, I guess to answer your question, there is uh, acceptance that is growing. Do you think that there have been other books written which have a similar view, maybe articulated differently? Or do you think that this is truly one of the rare books of interpretation of what happened with the Essenes and the Qumran community? There have been a lot of different periodicals and papers written that bear out what different portions of what Dr. Klein says. Our problem, like any other discipline, is that we have evolved our own language and our own following. Uh, for example, I had a, a, a book sent to me not long ago, and it was a wonderful book uh, speculating on the power of Jesus and salvation for uh people who may not be of this world, what if there are ETs that Jesus die for them if you believe in the Christ story? But it was written in ecumenical language so heavy that I had to send it back and say, write this for the masses. Do not tell me that you are querying the pneumology of of, of the uh, hypostasis. Uh, uh, Tell me instead that you're wondering what the Holy Spirit is made of. The masses will understand the second. They won't care about the first. Because you don't want to learn a new language in order to, uh, to, to, to delve into these questions that everyone should be having access to. Dr. Klein has distilled down the periodicals and the papers and the essays and the theses and brought them to uh, a point of recognition where he can ask the question that the mass will understand, which is, do we have the story right? Here are the possibilities. You decide. It's really a pleasure to have you on the show. And 
we really want to have you back to discuss another one of your books very soon. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us in closing today? Just keep questioning. Just keep asking why. And pretty soon you'll find yourself outside of the box. And it's pretty free. It's a, it's a, it's a wide world outside of religion to look as an observer toward the, uh, toward the box itself and say, it's a very interesting constraint that we've made for ourselves. Do you think it's possible to have a direct relationship with what we refer to as a creator without any dogma? I really think it is, and my Christian friends will slap me on the back of the head for saying this, but I think that the closest thing that you can come may be the practice of Zen. I could get that. I could totally get that. I'm a student of Thich Nhat Hanh, a Buddhist who's been up for the Nobel Prize, and I've never felt so close to God as I've been in his presence and with his teachings. Isn't it odd that the less religious dogma and doctrine we carry around, the lighter our heart is and the closer we are to God? It's an interesting paradox. (laughs) Very interesting paradox. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, listening to, and learning from Joseph Lumpkin, the founder of Fifth Estate Publishing at fifthestatepub.com. He has been talking about the book by Fernando Klein, The Dead Sea Jesus, a critical study of the Qumran Scrolls. And we've been talking about many, many things. If you'd like to reach Joseph or buy one of his maybe 25 books, which you should definitely read, Go to fifthestatepub.com. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Joseph, thank you for being our guest, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you, Kim. I appreciate it as usual. You did a wonderful job, and I, I thank you for your scholarly work. Thank you. God bless you, Joseph.